0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag
1: Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson hello folks thanks for tuning in to aoa today we certainly appreciate being a part of your day and what a day it's starting out to be already we have seen the grain markets steadily overcoming their weakness in the overnight we'll talk to Dwayne bussey of bolt marketing about that here in just a moment then we're going to talk to Sigrid Johannes, the Associate producer the Director of Public Lands Council over in Washington, D.C., about some of the changes coming to the endangered species listing and how that could impact farmers and cattle producers specifically across the country. And in segment three, I'm excited to talk with Brian Jennings. He's the CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol, and they have been very active over the past nine, 12 months, going out to states and helping get them start clean fuels policies that would promote and encourage the use of biofuels. Brian's going to give us an update on the state of play for those various legislative efforts. And then we're going to close the show with, yes, folks, another look at the Mississippi River. More record low levels set down that river here over the weekend and into Monday. Mike Steenhook of the Soy Transportation Coalition will join us for an update on the challenges there to the waterways. But first and foremost, let's see how harvest is going up in South Dakota with Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing. Dwayne, did we catch you in a combine today?
2: No, actually, believe it or not, for our farm, this is really weird to be done, but we, we got done this weekend. So, back in the office full time and uh, watching these markets closely.
1: Well, Dwayne, how did harvest end up for you guys? Where did yields come in there in that northeast South Dakota region?
2: Yeah, northeast South Dakota was really good. Uh, corn ended up right at around that 195, even though it was planted for the most part almost all of it in June. So (laughs) I gotta be happy with that. Ended up being dry, good test weight. So knock on wood, that went really well. Hopefully next year, we don't have that prevent plant problem. We can plant it all fence row to fence row, which right now we're getting pretty dry. So it does look that way.
1: Well, Dwayne, as you're watching these markets here, these, uh, prices roll in today, it seems like we are gaining strength in the commodity trade today. What's your read on the price action so far?
2: I think it stems back to the U.S. dollar. I glanced over there and saw that's down over a 1,000 points right now. I'm lacking the news of why it tumbled so hard. But, you know, the, the failure maybe to push through the 114, 115 level, and the dollar's got us back to the 110 level and kind of crashing hard today. Helped pull the corn market from negative to positive, but yet we run out of steam there right away too, Mike, because it's, we don't have a lot of bullish news right now other than the old bullish news that supplies are tight in the U.S., but – export demand is really low too. So we kind of have a tug of war between the bulls and bears there between a a tight supply and who who cares if we don't export it.
1: (laughs) Well, that's a good point, Dwayne. With all of that being said, that December corn contract trading here is 685-ish. Can we get to seven here before expiration?
2: Oh, I think so. Um, it just takes a, a tiny weather scare, really, in Brazil, and I, I think we'd get right back up there. Now, that being said, we don't have that in today's forecast, actually. A nice mix of rain and sun for Brazil as they plant their crop. Argentina's been very dry, and that's where you know the first weather scare could come from. But they've got some rains coming this week, at least for the eastern part of the country. So you don't see it there right now. But we got to remember the, the time of year, you know, actually corn usually bottoms around that second week of October and then rallies. Now, I know that's normally a harvest low and sharply lower prices than now, but it's an odd time of year to sell off as well. So, I, no, we can definitely still get to seven, just, you know, a little bit ease of the recession talk, uh, and we could do it just with that.
1: Dwayne, over on the soybean front, last week we saw very strong soybean exports, at least relative to where they've been over the past six months. And according to inspections, it looks like we're heading for another strong week this week. Have in, have exports turned a corner?
2: I, I sure hope so. I, I kind of think so. Right now, out of the PNW, the U.S. is cheaper than Brazil. So that's got to attract China's attention. You know, Yes, there's a lot of talk of them having a recession and President Xi you know, got reelected, and then is really shaking up his cabinet, firing a lot of people, and that's got their stock market down hard. But they're still – their protein demand, let's call it that, is still really high, and I think their supplies are very low. So, no, I, I think you're right. That's the good news on the export side, because I think soybeans have some big exports in front of them. And, you know, we've held kind of this low area. We it seems like we can't drop through that 13.50 mark. Now maybe we make another run for $14 plus now.
1: All right. Well, that'd be good news to some folks still looking to get some sales on with their beans. Dwayne, I want to take our focus over to the livestock markets with the cattle on feed report on Friday. We had cold storage out earlier this week. Where's this market headed? Where do you see live cattle going in the short term?
2: Well, we're a little overbought after the extreme shot up to the upside here. It's kind of a fun looking chart. And above 150 we finally got that 150 cash you and I talked about it for quite a while this summer. Uh, cutouts were up pretty good yesterday, a choice up about 4 bucks, but there's still that $32 spread between choice and select, which is a little odd. But demand looks good. And honestly, on the pork side, you could see China step in and start buying some of our imports there too. So in general, the meat complex looks good. But like I mentioned right away, we are overbought. So don't be shocked to see a bit of a correction here. On a correction, I'd probably be a buyer of the feeder market. That's kind of actually been a follower, which is odd for the feeder market to be a follower. But I think that market has a lot of potential this fall and this winter.
1: All right, Dwayne, you mentioned there that choice select spread currently sitting at $32. And you said that was odd. For folks who don't make a living looking at the markets here, what does that choice select spread that wide tell you this time of year?
2: Well, it, what it, it stems back to actually this summer. Um, we had a, a lot of lower grading cattle from the south, um, and we didn't have as many up north, basically. So uh, we had more select, basically, being offered. Now, and I don't mean that to, to get our, our southern listeners upset. It's just, uh, you know. Texas cattle can be a little bit different than something out of Montana as far as how they grade. So it's kind of just a supply and demand thing, but now with choice being this high and then trading even higher yesterday to me is a sign of high restaurant demand. You know, they, they want the choice cut meats for the steaks on the East and West coast, obviously. So it's a sign of good demand, but we have that spread just because of the, a little bit more supply on the select. The other reason why we have more select cattle is we didn't overfeed them this summer. We stayed very current in the market. So we sold them the second they got up to weight. That means a little bit less fat, a little lower grading.
1: Okay. Great points, Dwayne. Hog market, we've seen that volatility continue there. Do you, do you expect to see any consolidation here in hogs?
2: We might start to get to see some consolidation because a in cattle, well, more than in cattle. we, We shot way up from where we were. Nice rebound in this market. Pork demand has been better. I think we can stabilize the stay up here, though. Don't look for a retracement back lower. The main reason is bird flu is firing up again in the U.S., and that keeps chicken and poultry prices high in the supermarket. And pork, even though we've rallied, still looks fairly cheap. So I think demand stays strong here.
1: All right, Dwayne. That is good news. Real quick, before we let you go, wheat market going to be headline driven here in the coming weeks.
2: You know that market's really odd. It's like last week we also decided to stop following the Russia Ukraine war because tensions there are really accelerated. We should have rallied, but maybe it was the rain in the forecast for the Southern Plains. But boy. Uh, a little bit of rain doesn't mean all the problems are fixed there. I, I, I keep—I don't want to catch the falling knife and try to buy weed here, but I'm definitely watching for a bottom type action and, and thinking we have higher numbers longer term.
1: All right. Things to watch in the markets with Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing. Dwayne, thanks for joining us today.
2: Yeah, anytime, Mike. Thanks for having me.
1: And folks, stick with us. We're going to talk about the endangered species aspect with Sigrid Johannes when uh, AOA returns. Stick around. We'll be right back.
0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart.
3: This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. It's advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com.
4: These acres you've put your life into, your view each harvest morning. While the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable now and for generations to come. Learn more about how we keep families farming at ADSPipe.com.
0: This is Ernie Johnson, Jr. Sports is about overcoming obstacles, and college coaches work hard to help young men overcome Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It's called Coach to Cure MD, and you can help. Text the word CURE to 501-501 to donate $25 on your next mobile phone bill. Or go online to coachtocuremd.org. Text the word CURE to 501-501. Help coaches cure MD.
5: Brought to you by the American Football Coaches Association.
0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA.
1: Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks. Certainly, policy pronouncements from Washington, D.C. have an impact on all of our business. And, well, there are two major policies currently under discussion. Well, I should say lots and lots of policies under discussion. Two that have an impact here for cattle producers. The first is the Waters of the U.S. ruling. And the second, of course, is the Endangered Species Act, which uh, continues to be in the news. Joining us for an update on those issues is Sigrid Johannes. She is the Associate Director at the Public Lands Council and also serves as the Associate Director for Natural Resources at NCBA. And Sig, thank you so much for joining us today. WOTUS rulemaking still going on, huh, at the EPA?
8: Sure thing. So there is uh, current rulemaking underway, as you noted, Mike, Uh, but the interesting fact there is that earlier this month, we saw in the Supreme Court oral arguments on another case uh, considering the definition of WOTUS or Waters of the United States. This is actually the fourth time that the Supreme Court has had a case or or an occasion to consider this definition. Uh, The most recent case was in Rapanos uh, a few years ago back in 2012, but this most This current case has to deal with the Sackett's, a couple in Idaho who uh, purchased a vacant lot about 300 feet from a lake uh, and wanted to construct a home. And U.S. Army Corps of Engineers had determined previously that that lot contained wetlands which qualified as navigable waters and therefore fell under the federal jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act, meaning that there are some activities like building that you're not going to be allowed to do on that lot. Uh, the Sacketts sued in federal court. They argued that the EPA did not have jurisdiction over their private property. There, uh, and the case has made its all you know way all the way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, this is something that NCBA and ag producers all across the country are monitoring very closely because where the the line sort of falls between the federal government's jurisdiction and your backyard can have a massive impact on cattle operations. We would like the EPA, the federal agency that that administers these rules, to halt their rulemaking on WOTUS until this court this case is decided, because in our opinion, it makes no sense to write a rule, release it subject all kinds of folks to all kinds of new regulations, and then potentially have to peel that back in early summer of 2023 when the Supreme Court hands down their decision. That kind of whiplash is not helpful. And so we would like to see them pause that rulemaking.
1: And as you've talked to folks at the EPA, of course, this parallel WOTUS rulemaking is happening while the Supreme Court is making their decision. Why are they moving forward with this? What's the likelihood that their rule is going to fit with the Supreme Court's uh, final ruling?
8: I think that's a great question, Mike, as to why they're moving forward. I think there's a decent amount of pressure uh, to to get this done. Uh, navigable waters and WOTUS. Are terms that have been kicked around for you know more than a decade now. These are terms that have become a little bit of a political football here in Washington. Uh, but when we go and talk to folks at EPA, we bring the message from cattle producers and cattle country, and that is not a political football for them. It's a real life, concrete issue that impacts the way that they're able to run their businesses and steward the land you know on their on their operations. So regardless of why the administration uh, is in such a rush to get this done, a rush in fact to get ahead of what could be a Supreme Court ruling that doesn't necessarily uh, line up with their vision of WOTUS, uh, they need to take into account the fact that this whiplash has real consequences for farmers and ranchers on the ground.
1: Absolutely, Sigurd. So we could see this proposed WOTUS rule come out before the Supreme Court ruling in early next year.
8: We could. It's possible. Uh, They are still in the drafting stage. And again, we don't have a firm timeline from them on when they expect to release that draft. But we are focused on uh, putting putting the brakes on that pretty hard at this point. Again, the Supreme Court will make that decision in early summer of 2023. We do not want to see a rulemaking out before then. And that's what we're working towards.
1: Well, let's turn our focus to another issue we have seen come up a lot under this administration, and that's the Endangered Species Act. Um, bats have been in the news this past year. Uh, we had both the uh, the tricolor bat most recently and the northern long eared bat look to get some enhanced protections. Secret, what does all this mean for cattle producers?
8: That's a great question, Mike. And it's one we hear a lot. You know, why are bats so relevant for, for cattle folks? And the answer is because bats roost in forest habitat. And especially in the West, in sort of the upper Great Plains region, uh, there's a lot of forest maintenance activities that directly relate to the risk that you have of wildfire, the risk that you have of that, that ignition that can lead to those sort of high canopy fires that burn really hot and really long and cause a lot of damage. And we've just wrapped up here. We're at the tail end of bit but we've just wrapped up another devastating fire season for for producers across the country the number of states that that impacts is creeping further and further east every year and that's a serious crisis. When you have a listing on a species of bat, the current comment period that's open is on the tricolored bat. Uh, that can come along with all kinds of restrictions. Once that bat falls under the Endangered Species Act as either as either threatened or endangered, there are some kinds of activities like tree thinning and other other mechanical you know maintenance activities that you're not going to be able to do supposedly out of fear that it's going to disturb the species but again that comes along with a host of unintended consequences you can get really severe wildfires in these areas then and frankly that's not good for wildlife species it's also not good for humans and it's not good for all of the commercial activities that depend on these lands
1: no it certainly isn't a secret do you know offhand what is the territory for the tricolored bat what areas of the u.s could be impacted by this listing
8: so the current uh, range, uh, according to the Fish and Wildlife Service, covers 39 states, and that's everything from the East Coast uh, down from Alabama up to Michigan and Minnesota, stretching west towards Colorado, uh, Oklahoma, Texas. It covers a, a tremendously wide range. Pretty much everything east of the, the Rocky Mountain Range would fall under this listing.
1: And with the, uh, an ESA ruling from the EPA, is it a one-size-fits-all uh, for all 39 states, or would each state have different uh, impacts from the ESA ruling?
8: No, and I think you're pointing out a very important aspect of this there, Mike. ESA listings are not Tailored. They are not intended to be, uh, you know, targeted to situations in different ecosystems and in different states. That's why we believe that state management of wildlife species is always the better option. You're going to be closer to the problem. You're going to have a better understanding of what the landscape and what the challenges look like in that environment. A one-size-fits-all federal rule rarely yields good results for all of the parties involved, including the wildlife that it's trying to protect.
1: Sig, what is the timeline here on this listing for the tricolor badge?
8: So the comment period is open until November 14th. That means the Fish and Wildlife Service is asking for public feedback until that date. If you wanna submit comments yourself, uh, you can always visit publiclandscouncil.org to access that comment portal. And uh, the Public Lands Council, as well as National Cattlemen's Beef Association, will be submitting our own comments there along with many of our affiliates uh, to make sure that producers' voices are really represented in this process.
1: All right, see, publiclandscouncil.org where you can go for that. And I'm curious also, we had news here in the past. Oh, gosh, it's probably been six weeks about the gray wolf getting listed or at least up listed. See, what's the process look like there?
8: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Mike. This has been a long fight and one that I always feel like we need to give some periodic updates because we're really in this one for the long haul. Uh, In August, actually, just right at the end of the summer here, PLC, as well as NCBA were granted intervener status in the the current ongoing case about the delisting of the gray wolf across the lower 48. That case is being played out in federal court in the Ninth Circuit. And it's a a question of defending that delisting on the grounds that the gray wolf is recovered. And again, in our opinion, and in the opinion of, of the other parties who are involved in this case with us, this is a situation where the species has recovered. We think that management should to be turned back to the states, the people who can do it best on the ground. And we've seen firsthand that this top-down approach, this one-size-fits-all approach is not working for rural communities or agricultural producers. Just in the past few weeks, you've seen some pretty shocking depredation numbers in some of those Northern Rocky Mountain states by gray wolves. That's extremely concerning to us. It's ex- concerning from an economic standpoint and from an environmental standpoint. And that's why we are staying uh, on on the case uh, in this case, not to put too, b- too bad of a pun on it, but we have uh, gotten our intervener status and we're gonna keep pushing that one forward now and not let it go.
1: So in the process, the recent depredations that we've seen out West from gray wolves, can we get that data in front of the regulator? See, is there still time?
8: There is still time. And, you know, every time we pull depredation stats, that's certainly something that's incorporated into our approach on these issues. That's something that we communicate to lawmakers. We communicate that to regulators. And certainly in the context of this court case, those are facts that we're going to continue to bring to the table from our end. But, you know, I think we are also seeing with the gray wolf issue, a tremendous example of why state associations and all of our grassroots affiliates for NCBA are so important because they're the ones really leading the charge on this, and they're the ones who have those firsthand, not just data, but firsthand stories about how this is really impacting people.
1: Absolutely. Grassroots gets results. Folks, we've been talking to Sigrid Johannes, the Associate Director at the Public Lands Council. If you want to make a comment on the endangered species' impacts to you, visit publiclandscouncil.org. Sigrid, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk with Brian Jennings about the ACE rollout here in the States agriculture
0: of america is brought to you by cenex Maxtron synthetic diesel engine
4: oils oils that run smart these acres you've put your life into your view each harvest morning while the ag industry changes this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs that's why ads and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect america's farm families We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable, now and for generations to come. Learn more about how we keep families farming at adspipe.com.
9: You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, let's take a look at what's happening here in the market trade as we work into our Tuesday. And we see that the grain markets, we did start mostly lower, but we are turning our way back to the upside here, led by the soybean complex as we work through our session Now, a lot of storylines we continue to watch here, including a lot of the recent news out of China with Xi Jinping's dominance over Chinese politics at the top. Commodity traders worry that China's policy solidifications around Xi's principles will lead to ongoing economic problems for China that reduces consumption of crude oil and of the food-based commodities. Now, U.S. soybean export shipments of 106.1 million bushels were the fourth-largest weekly total on record in the week ending October 20th, despite low water problems on the Mississippi. Exporters they aggressively move the oil seed to and through the ports in the Pacific Northwest. This comes following a period of aggressive Chinese purchases of soybeans as buyers try to fill holes in coverage ahead of the Brazilian harvest. Now we're going to be watching what the demand picture looks like for soybeans here as we move forward. Also be watching the uh, health of the U.S. economy. We'll get data on gross domestic product for the third quarter on Thursday. At the same time, we also will see durable goods orders data for September and the weekly jobless claims data is released coming up on Thursday. And this is all ahead of a expected expected. Interest rate hike by the Fed once again of another 75 basis points coming in here next week. That'll be something that remains to be seen as well. Overall, though, so far on Tuesday, the grains are working their way mostly back to the upside again, led by soybeans. A little more mixed activity over in the livestock sector as grains are coming back to positive territory. That's putting some pressure on cattle and hog trade as well. Crude oil is up a dollar a barrel at 85.57. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen reporting.
7: Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes Purple Packaging at your grocery store and visit rfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite.
0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
1: Well, folks, welcome back. This past year, we saw fuels move into center stage as gas prices exploded across the country, and ethanol moved in as a way to help bring that price down at the pump. We saw President Biden issue an emergency E-15 usage waiver that allowed the sale of that product all summer long, but we have not seen a lot of federal action since. But... Policy action hasn't stopped. Several states across the country have started looking for ways to give their drivers choice at the pump and provide more ethanol blends year round. And the American Coalition for Ethanol has been working with a lot of those states and legislators as they craft these rules. And I figured just ahead of election time, it was time for an update on how these state clean fuel policies are going. And joining us for that update is Brian Jennings. He is the CEO at the American Coalition for Ethanol. And Brian, this has certainly been a busy year for you. Hasn't it?
5: And yeah, you know, the last couple of years have been busy. You you said it. There's been some activity at the federal level, um, especially recently. But but largely, the last couple of years, activity has been somewhat subdued in Congress. And so we've turned to to these states, and increasingly, whether it's legislators or governors or both, in some instances. These states are interested in doing something to help spur their economy, help increase uh, the production and use of, of biofuels, and they're looking at these policies through the lens of hey, what can we do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Increasingly, we see both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans at all levels of government, interested in policies that can try to tackle greenhouse gas emissions and these clean fuel standards that have been uh, discussed in several states and and legislation introduced in in a handful of states have certainly uh, been been a priority for us.
1: So let's talk about these clean fuel standards. Brian, what are the states that you have seen this movement really take off and have seen some legislation make some headway?
5: Well, this uh, initiative really began back in 2011 in California um, the California program has some, some some good parts, but but also some 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 real problems. Um, but lately, we've seen the Midwest really take on this topic of clean fuel policy. Minnesota has been the state, Mike, that has had the most activity. There was a bipartisan bicameral bill introduced first in 2021 that made incredible progress. Frankly, more progress than we expected it to would have required uh, greenhouse gas reductions in transportation fuel over time and dramatically increased E15 and E30 and E85 use. Um, this year, 2022, in the Minnesota legislature, that legislation stalled a bit, and that tends to happen as more and more opponents come out of the woodwork to, to try to pick at uh, the bill, but we, we still feel very good about our chances next year. We're looking at places like Ohio and Illinois um, and Nebraska. In fact, I feel really encouraged by the conversations that are taking place in Nebraska. We could see legislation in the Unicameral in 2023. So momentum is really building now in the Midwest for these kinds of policies. And ethanol is a big reason why.
1: Brian, what is it about ethanol that makes it a compelling argument to fit in with these clean fuel policies?
5: Well, it's abundantly available, as you said, with these high gas prices, which is on the mind of policymakers, whether they're in Congress or in a state legislature somewhere. Um, Reducing fuel prices for your constituents is a big deal. And then, of course, ethanol is one of the best ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the transportation fuel supply. There's always going to be the hype around electric vehicles, and you and I have talked about how a lot of that is is more fantasy than reality. Um, but ethanol is providing meaningful reductions in greenhouse gas emissions today, and it will make even more meaningful reductions in greenhouse gas emissions in the future as carbon capture and sequestration technologies are added as some of these farming practices that help reduce Um, emissions are calculated and and included in some of the life cycle assessments. And so ethanol brings a lot of advantages, but it's primarily the economic advantages, saving folks money at the pump, uh, stimulating the economy in rural states, and then the greenhouse gas reduction benefits as well.
1: Now, Brian, I understand a lot of these clean fuel proposals and the proposed policies are technology neutral, which means they're going to look at a lot of ways to accomplish their goals. Does this mean that biofuels proponents need to accept perhaps some compromises with electrical vehicle proponents?
5: It does, and that's hard, that's a hard thing for some of my colleagues to swallow, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Um, but technology neutral is the way to go as opposed to, for instance, what is really evolved over time in california which is it's a very biased program in favor of electric vehicles the way they do their life cycle assessments they really unfairly penalize biofuels from the midwest and they really uplift electric vehicles and imported ethanol from brazil for example we don't want to do that we don't want to tilt the scale in favor of one technology over the other we're incredibly confident with ethanol's ability to compete In a marketplace that is underpinned with a policy that is technology neutral, that is going to mean, Mike, we're going to see renewable diesel, renewable natural gas, um, electric vehicles, and, and biofuels like ethanol are all going to be part of the solution, and that's the way it ought to be.
1: Absolutely, it's good to give people choice, let consumers make the decision. Brian, we do see California's impact in this regard very widespread. And I know this past week, Ace had the chance to explain the benefits of biofuels to both Washington and Oregon. What are those two states considering?
5: Well, so California is where this really started, right? And then then you saw this clean fuel policy migrate to Oregon and Washington as well. And those states are really trying to mimic in many ways what California has done. And we're just trying to make sure that as other states look at these policies, you don't have to do it exactly the way California has. For example, they assess a 20-gram CO2 penalty on corn ethanol from the Midwest for land use change when the most recent GREET model would suggest land use change, if there is any at all, is probably a three or four gram penalty, so that's a significant difference. And we don't want to see states like Washington and Oregon replicate everything California has done. And so we're trying to make clear to policymakers, whether they're on the West Coast or they're in Nebraska or or Minnesota, closer uh, to to here at home with the ethanol industry, that um, there are different ways to tackle this, and you don't have to replicate all of the pieces that you see in the state of California.
1: And Brian, all of these states are doing this in ways to, I guess, to find a way around some of the restrictions and the rulings by the EPA. What's the mechanism that
5: allows these states
1: to operate outside of the EPA's
5: strictures? So this, this was challenged, actually, the idea that a state can impose a clean fuel standard or a clean fuel policy was challenged Um, in California, um, arguing that the Dormant Commerce Clause does not allow a state uh, to to implement a policy like this, that it ought to be done at the federal level. And the federal court system found that California can indeed have their clean fuel policy. It does not violate the Dormant Commerce Clause. And so that's why you've seen other states do this, I'm guessing at some point, Mike, especially if we see a Minnesota and a Nebraska implement at some point in time clean fuel policy, that the federal government will step in at some point in time because they don't want to see a patchwork of various policies around the country. And so eventually Congress is likely to take this up. When that is, I certainly can't predict, but I do think it's a matter of when, not if. And a lot of that will be spurred if if these Midwest states take it upon themselves to develop these policies as well. And the reason we're driving this is because we want to see more demand for ethanol. And all of the analysis we've done on these clean fuel policies is if you do them right and they are technology neutral, E15 use goes up dramatically, E85 use goes up dramatically because those fuels help reduce emissions.
1: Brian, you just said, if you do it right, are there any states out there that, that you are proud to hold up as a model that you think really are doing it right? Or is it still a work in progress largely across the country?
5: Well, the, the initial legislation that we helped craft in Minnesota in 2021 was really an incredible model for how other states ought to do it. Unfortunately, in 2022, uh, the Minnesota bill really got tweaked in a, in a House committee to a point where we were not willing to support it uh, and it stalled on the Senate side. I've been involved in the conversations, uh, the the stakeholder discussions in Nebraska, and I feel very good about what that legislation might look like if it is introduced in 2023. So we're putting a lot of effort into helping those folks in in Nebraska uh, develop that if they wanna go in that direction. And we're using these two examples, Minnesota, and Nebraska when we have these conversations with Ohio and with Michigan and with Illinois and and trying to get other folks in in other states to pursue this as well.
1: Brian, if we've got listeners who want to get more involved, how can they learn what ACE is up to?
5: Sure, they can always go to our website, which is ethanol.org. You can learn a lot about the activity we're doing uh, on E15 and higher blends
1: absolutely folks check it out continue to fight for adding value to the u.s corn crop right here and saving folks money at the pump brian jennings ceo of grow uh, ace american coalition for ethanol thanks so much for joining us today brian
5: thanks mike take care
1: and folks stick around we'll be talking with mike steenhook of the soy transportation coalition when aoa returns Agriculture
0: of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine
6: Oils. Oils that run smart.
8: You're going to need me.
3: You're going to need us. All of us.
4: You're going to need our technical skills, our math, our engineering skills.
8: You're going to need our help with your water, your air, your food. You're
0: going to need our organizational skills, our problem-solving skills,
4: You're going to need our determination, our honesty, our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise, we'll be there when you need us. Today,
7: 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org.
4: These acres you've put your life into, your view each harvest morning. While the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable, now and for generations to come. Learn more about how we keep families farming at ADSPipe.com.
0: agriculture of america is brought to you by cenex Maxtron synthetic diesel engine oils oils that run smart keeping america's farmers and ranchers
1: informed on aoa now back to mike pearson Hello, folks. Welcome back to AOA. Appreciate you joining us today for the show. There is a lot happening in the agriculture industry and there is a lot happening. Well, I guess less than we'd expect happening on the Mississippi River. And that is creating challenges. Joining us today for an update on the situation there in transportation land is Mike Steenhook. He's the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. And Mike, it continues to be more bad news out of the Mississippi River waterway.
10: Yeah, and I I just keep coming back to the metaphor of a garden hose to a fire hydrant. You know, you've got, you know, this increased supply that's coming online, and that's all these farmers who are in the fields harvesting their crops, coming, in many cases, really strong yields. And, you know, there's going to be a really high degree of volume that's going to be produced by America's farmers. But then you've got a a, a transportation system that is not compatible with that right now, particularly in the the inland waterway system with the low water conditions. So you've got a given amount of volume, you've got, you've got the, the river system being restricted. And then unfortunately, as, you, as we're increasing the volume, the, the river conditions are continuing to deteriorate with lower water conditions. It affects both channel depth and channel width, and just, it diminishes the economics of barge transportation coming at a very inopportune time, and that's harvest season.
1: Yeah, indeed it is, Mike. And I saw that we do have some new draft restrictions on the lower Mississippi. And I'm curious, I know you've told me before, each time we lose a foot of draft on those barges, how much capacity are we
10: losing? Yeah, you're looking at about 5,000 bushels of soybeans. And so, you know, to use a a round number, you know, 50,000 bushels that you can load into a single barge. A lot of times, you know, north of that. Um, But, you know, so if you're going from, you know, if you're reducing the water depth, and we're seeing, you know, two to three feet of, of reduced water depth, so if you're going from, say, 12 feet to nine feet, you know, all of a sudden you're taking 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 fewer bushels of soybeans per, per barge, and then if you're restricting the, the number of barges that you can attach together, going from, say, 35 or even up to 40 down to 25, and that's the current restriction, you really get hit in two areas. Um, and you, you, when you put those two things together, having a, a deep channel and a wide river channel, that's what really makes the magic work when it comes to barge transportation. That's what makes it so economical to move soybeans and, and corn 900, 1000 miles in, in such an economical manner. And when you start diminishing those two things, it really does change the economics
1: it certainly does mike and in your conversation with folks here in the soy industry how are they grappling with this are they just piling beans is that the plan for now are they starting to book rail capacity how are soy producers and end users dealing with these low water levels
10: yeah you know it really depends upon you know the farm where you where you sit in the whole midwest and whether you've got good options b c and d some farmers actually do you might have a, a processor that's not too far away, you might be able to drive a longer distance to tap into a rail loading facility to, say, go to the Pacific Northwest or even to the Atlantic Coast. You you might have a, a robust amount of livestock that's uh, in your particular state. But then there's, there's other farmers that, and this is mainly the case for those who are really close to the river, and you're seeing this a lot in the South, states like Mississippi, Tennessee, Louisiana, et cetera, where you 're really close to the river, and as a result of that, because the river is so competitive it's such an, it, historically it's such an attractive place to deliver your soybeans and grain, there hasn't been a lot of these option B's C's, and B's that have sprung up in that vicinity to compete with the river because the river is so competitive and you know a number of these farmers haven't really developed a lot of on farm storage either some farmers have, and so they're they're resorting to actually just storing more of their beans and, and corn in their, in their bins, hoping for a more opportune time in the future where water conditions are better. But some of these farmers, they don't have that. And those are the farmers who will really be exposed, and that's those are the ones I'm, I'm particularly concerned about, concerned about everyone, but those are the ones who are particularly exposed to this.
1: That's a great point. With few other market opportunities, they could be the hardest hit. Mike, I know that some of those elevators right on the river have not been able to load. They can't get barges close enough to the shore to reach their their loading spigots. And I'm curious, have we or are there concerns that any of our exporters won't be able to get beans off of barges when they get down into the lower Mississippi?
10: Yeah, you know, you're seeing lower conditions down in the lower Mississippi River. And again, that's where 60% of U.S. soybean exports year in and year out leave from, 59% of corn exports. So it's a, it's a big component of our export program. That's a real concern, is, is, particularly for soybean industry. It's game time when it comes to our export calendar, September to February. That six-month period of time, 80% of our soybean exports leave from the United States. And so then all of a sudden you don't have this this pipeline that's really feeding into that like it normally does, the question is what does that do for our exports and does that you know, cause more attention to, say, Brazil or does that result in more soybeans having to just re- be retained here in the United States and, and more com- competition for the domestic market? It's really disruptive and, and it just kind of is an, it's a lesson that you know, the economics of our industry works with, yes, farmers growing the crop and, yes, having demand for that crop, but you got to be able to connect the two. That's what our multimodal supply chain does. And that's in the inland waterway system is a very important part of that.
1: Indeed it is, Mike. While well, we've got you, you mentioned the multimodal transportation system is our secret weapon here in U.S. agriculture. We've got troubles on the river. So we're turning to the other two focuses. How, are, how is rail carriage keeping up with this additional flow and traffic? Have you heard much from uh, soya uh, end users?
10: Yeah, there's a lot of you know, you know, shifts onto the rail network and some will be able to take advantage of that and that will be a viable option for them. But, you know, we do need to keep in mind that our rail infrastructure is under considerable stress right now. It's not up to the reliable standards that, you know, it normally is. Um, and, And so it's really taking some steps backward over these last couple of years. So that's kind of the concern is there's not this ability to just transfer all of this volume wholesale onto alternative modes of transportation like rail, you know, certainly not, not truck. And then on top of that, you've got this potential threat of a, of a rail strike in the middle of November. So all of a sudden, there's this big question mark that's just been uh, in, imposed onto our industry in terms of rail service. So that's something that's very unwelcome it really has caused some additional agitation among soybean and grain shippers. And so that's something that we're clearly going to be monitoring and engaged in moving forward.
1: Mike, do you have a handle on when those unions could vote whether or not to accept that deal with the railroads?
10: Yeah, there, there's a number of them. We're, still, we're up to six of the 12 have actually ratified the tentative agreement, six of the worker unions. And now we still, but we have one who has actually rejected that tentative agreement and they've mentioned that there is this possibility that they could engage in a strike as early as November 19th, which, you know, that's just, you know, less than a, a month away. And that's really concerning. And then there's a couple other unions that are still, you know, wrestling with what they're going to decide to do, two of the, the main ones. So it, it's just a reminder that supply chains work when there's predictability to it. And, and we need to have that. And you know those who ship soybeans and other grains, they're, they're, the decisions they're making today is not where they're going to ship mostly. They're not, gonna, they're not deciding where they're going to ship today. They've been making decisions today on where they're going to ship next month, two months from now. And so if that's the reality of your industry, which it is with agriculture, you've got to have a predictable supply chain. And so it seems like everywhere we're turning these days, there's less reliability, less predictability, and it's having a consequence.
1: Indeed, it is. Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, certainly going to have your work cut out for you over the next couple of months with these transportation snags. Appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Mike. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll talk about more of the issues that are impacting agriculture right here on AOA. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great day.
0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart.
3: This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com.
4: These acres you've put your life into, your view each harvest morning. While the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable, now and for generations to come. Learn
6: more about how we keep families farming at adspipe.com.